listening to Rattle and Pedal, diversion thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Your hosts are Jason Malicki and Jeff McKay. All right, Jeff. So last time we talked, we did a pretty systematic beatdown on how firms launch new services or really the mistakes they make when they try to launch new services. So this week, I thought we should do the opposite. We should go to the, the good side of the force and talk about how practice leaders should go about commercializing an idea. So how do they take that successful engagement that they've had or successful string of engagements they've had, maybe two or three, and really turn that into a tangible service that the firm can really build at scale and get growth opportunity? Because that's really what the partner sees is that there's growth opportunity here from this engagement. Now let's go find a way to get it. So I don't know, you game? I'm game. And and you're okay. so positive. It's nice to be around positive people like you. <laughs> Why do you say that? <laughs> because it is, you know, I tend towards the more realistic, as I like to call it, view. Some might call it pessimistic view. So it's always nice to be around positive people like you. And I hope when we're done with this, our listeners are positive and excited about all the new product launches they're going to be capable of handling. Yeah, I mean, to your point, when I think back on the on the discussion we had last week, we really narrowed in on thanks to, I guess, you're jogging my memory. (laughs) We really narrowed in on due diligence, really, that firms frequently just don't do enough or don't do the right due diligence in those early stages of, hey, we hear we had the successful engagement. Now, is this a viable service? So is that maybe the first place to start is just say, well, okay, let's talk about what good due diligence looks like for a minute and then layer on from there? I, I think that could be a really good place to start. There might be one before it and that And we might get to that anyway, but you have to have something to do due diligence on. So there is going to be some hypothesis or, you know, Mm -hmm. former engagement that's going to start this whole thing. There's going to be an idea. And I think one of the things that we didn't talk about, but we talked about this in our prep. And I know you've written about this. I've written about this. But the person that's really shaped my thinking around this is Bob Boudet. And it's how firms should be using their research and intellectual capital agenda, not just for marketing content and fodder, but for actual new product development. And we could probably do an entire podcast on that. But I think that's where it starts. Where's the idea and what's the hypothesis about it? Then we jump into the due diligence and start looking at some of the assumptions around that hypothesis. Well, the interesting thing is, I know there's a lot of firms that don't do research, that don't value it or don't or think it's too expensive or don't invest in it. And you make a really valid point in that I've had that happen, right? You know, So the running joke I had at our event last year, so after Bob and I had done the research that culminated in the seven capabilities of exceptional thought leadership marketers that we've talked about on this podcast, Capability 7 is really all about sales accelerators. So how the firms that are really great at this do a really good job of acting their thought leadership through the sales force. And when that came out in the research, it was sort of that R&D moment for us as well. And my joke at the event, I'm up speaking at the event. And when I'm covering this data, I said, well, we're not in the sales enablement business until right now. (laughs) Because when you see the data, all of a sudden you go, wow, there's probably a big opportunity here for us to do something. Not sure what it looks like yet, but there is. And so I I just shared that only from the sense of that's what that should feel like for firms when they do research, when they find something that they didn't expect to find. And they say, wow, we never thought about it that way. We should look at doing something there for our clients. So Mm -hmm. I think that's what we're talking about, right? Yep. Okay. So that's an interesting point. It it can come out of a client engagement or it can come out of 
research that's not tied to a client engagement. Yeah. And it's better if it comes out of both. Yeah. Because it's almost like you've already started proving the hypothesis. Okay. But, but as we talked about last podcast, don't be overly optimistic because one client has bought it that that means there's a market for it. And that's why it's so important to do the due diligence and why we kind of beat that up last time is most people say, well, one client buy it, then they're all going to buy it. A consultant say, I know my clients better than anybody else. And the whole point is to find all of the weaknesses of the assumption so that you can engineer them out and or kill the product as or services it it's currently structured. You know, your point is a good one, which is that at the hypothesis stage for a lot of firms, the only place the hypothesis forms is in the client engagement. And this is sort of another case to have a formal research methodology in your firm, because there are other market opportunities that you're just not seeing from your client work that research can help you find. And then that gives you something to do due diligence on. What's your sense? Are there many firms or even any firms that actually have a formal due diligence process that helps them vet these types of new services that come to the table from partners? Or is it ad hoc all the time? I think in most firms, it's ad hoc. Yeah. And it's and, and it's ad hoc because it's difficult to quantify investments to a large degree on intangibles, right? Because you're just talking about some consultant's time, maybe putting together a PowerPoint or something like that. But when you actually start building a product, let's say you want to convert something into software you know, some kind of annuity type of of solution, you're going to start making some serious investments. And the best firms have a methodology of making those investments. They establish milestones where the amount of money being invested may escalate as each milestone is passed. But the more disciplined firms, I think, say, hey, you know, run with this. Here's some seed capital, some seed budget. Run with it. You know, reach this milestone. We'll assess and then we'll reinvest again. So I think some of that that rigor that comes from the from the VC world makes its way into some of the better firms. So you've seen some stage gate methodologies inside of firms, yeah. which would be sort of classic VC mentality on this. Yeah. But not all. Some people run and spend a lot of money (laughs) on this stuff. And all they have is an idea. And they waste a lot of time and money. And it's not just the time and money. It's the opportunity cost of what really could have been done with that time and money. If they had just taken a different approach, they spend all their time trying to prove that it'll work instead of you know, the harder work of demonstrating why it won't and then engineering around that. At least that's my experience. Somebody could argue the exact opposite, but that's what I've seen. Yeah, it's interesting because there's a hypothesis that forms in the minds of the partners or whoever that there's a service opportunity here that that it represents growth opportunity or revenue for us. And then from that, there needs to be a due diligence process that leads to some type of stage gate methodology that says, okay, we're going to make this strategic investment with this desired goal to test the market opportunity for this. And then we're going to step back from that, see what we learned, and then decide if we want to go deeper with more time and money. And it's almost like not even until that point has passed, are you really into a launch world, right? where you're messaging something, launching something, putting it on the website, taking it to clients more than a handful and sort of 
publicly saying, hey, we're in this marketplace or we're providing this service now, right? Yes. Yep. And my sense is that that due diligence and stage gate sort of like process is where the biggest opportunity is for firms to improve, that they're just not rigorous enough in making informed decisions a little bit at a time to see what works. Is that a kind of, would you agree with me there? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, so then I think, depending on the product, the question is, well, what are the stages, the, the gates and milestones yeah. that you have to, you have to address? If you take the first one, hey, we had this successful engagement. We really think the, the market could benefit from this. I think the, the first stage is, okay, put it down in a PowerPoint or a white paper and go out and start selling it, you know, hand to hand combat, one on one. You know, not doing the silly stuff that we talked about last week of naming it and trademarking it and branding it and all that other stuff. But go out and get a second engagement, refine it, go out and get a third engagement, refine it. I I recommend that firms just adapt the lean startup methodology and the business model canvas. I mean, that's simple and intuitive and you just get out of the building. And go test it. You don't even have to sell an engagement necessarily. You're just at least out talking and refining the idea. Yeah, it's it's funny. Years ago, when we when we first carved out our niche, kind of vertical niche inside of professional services, we had different service offerings that we thought would be of interest to different clients in this space. And we had an outbound business development person who now is still with us in more of an inbound capacity, I would say, for the most part. And one of the things that we decided when we had him doing outreach to prospective clients was we were viewing the sales activity as market research. Really, we were trying to just test different service offerings, different you know, different combinations of what we thought the market needed and get and just get receptivity to it in a way. And we didn't even really necessarily care in those early stages whether they said, yes, let's talk, no, let's not, or whatever. We were more trying to basically just collect as many no's as we could to figure out which things that we thought were most important would be most important to people. So it's really interesting that you kind of say, get out and sell it first. Because when you first said that, my initial inclination was like, well, wait a minute, why, why are we trying to sell something before we even know what it is? But, <laughs> you know, what are we selling? I got this box over here. It's really great. I don't know what it can do yet. Uh, you want to buy it? That, Jason, it, you just got to the, the whole point of the podcast is consultants don't want to go out and sell something that isn't fully baked. It goes back to the concept of, or I don't know if I would call it concept. It's the anxiety or fear of unknowing that plagues so many of our clients. It's like, oh, if I don't have a complete understanding of this and a client asks me a question I can't answer, that's going to make me look stupid and I'm going to lose credibility. And and what does that mean? And it, it creates inertia in them. And that's why so many of them jump through all those other hoops of, of branding and marketing because it makes them feel more secure that it's actually going to work. And it just so seldom does. But it's, it's, that's, that's one of those BS of PS attributes within professional services firms that marketers have to engineer out and give them the confidence to go out and say, hey, we have this idea. What do you think? What about this? What about that? They don't want to do that. 
but that's where all the time is wasted. Well, the interesting thing is I, I had a faculty member in business school that always said in a professional services firm, you needed to have a portfolio of client relationships that represented different ways of working. And, and among that portfolio, you always had to have a set of clients that have so much trust and faith in your firm that they give you opportunities to go well outside your comfort zone and do things that you really don't have any business doing or have no experience doing. So you're literally selling things to them that you've never done and you're not even sure if they're going to work and you're completely uncomfortable with that. But it, mutually, the client and you both agree that, that's, that, that we're okay with that, that they want that. They want that cutting edge, bleeding edge, whatever you want to call it, idea that's unproven. And they are completely okay with being the test case for that because they know that if it works, they're the ones on the front edge of it all. I mean, maybe to mitigate that, that's one thing you can do inside your firm is you can start segmenting your clients based on those types of attributes. You know, is there a segment in here of, of people that are willing to bring us into new spaces or have actually brought us some, we've had, we've had clients for the years that took us into whole new areas of agency services that we never would have been able to do without them basically just saying, hey, we love working with you guys. Could you do this? We know you've never done it before, but we don't care. So I think that that's one way you might break that down, right? Are there other ways? I call those friends of the firm and they don't have to just be the cutting edge ones. Too. There you they, go. You, there you go. You brand it and name it like every marketer. You ruin <laughs> it. You ruin it. That's a simple idea. Now you've ruined it. Way to go. Friends of the, friends firm. Of the firm. Marketing ruins everything. McKay ruins everything. <laughs> but they don't just need to be cutting edge. You want friends of the firm that aren't cutting edge because they'll tell you kind of the negative apprehensive attributes that would keep them from doing something like that. And those insights are just as important as the cutting edge ones. But every firm has friends of the firm where you can go in and just kind of expose yourself and they're willing to, to share. You're listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on growing your professional services firm. Your hosts are Jason Malicki, principal of Rattleback, the marketing agency for professional services firms, and Jeff McKay, former CMO and founder of strategy consultancy, Prudent Pedal. If you find this podcast helpful, please help us by telling a friend and rating us on iTunes. Thank you. Now back to Jason and Jeff. You know, it's, it's also, if you think about the notion of crossing the chasm, so Moore's book in the technology mm -hmm. space, it's almost the same thing, right? You have a set of early adopters to some extent inside your client base that are more open and, and innovative and interested in new, new things. And it's sort of connecting with the, you know, your new offerings, your new ideas with them before you go into the mass market where the dynamics entirely change. You know, it's almost like you've described, you've got friends of the firms in both sides of that chasm. You have early adopters that, that are open to new things, but then you also have friends that are in the mainstream that will help you identify all the reasons things aren't going to work. And you, you need to engage them you know, at both points. Yeah. And the, the moral of the story is you never go wrong having a conversation with a client or a prospect around that. So if the first thing you got to do is get out and sell it, what's the next thing? You know, so, so let's say I go out there, I've now sold this thing. I've sold it five, six, eight, ten times. I've refined it. I've tweaked it. I've changed the model. I've done the things I've learned along the way. What do I do next? What's the next stage of the gate? Yeah, there's a... It will, <laughs> I guess the, the next step is to, to scale it because probably you're selling out of a single office. so. Can you take that solution and scale it? So can you teach other people 
how to deliver that same service? Or is that product really built around a single big brain in your firm or a very narrow specific skill? So I think you need to be able to take the methodology or, or whatever it is and transfer it to others and let them run with it. Well, there's two sides to scaling, right? There's the operational side, you know, right, that you just described, which mm-hmm. is making sure that you have a methodology that can be trained into other people, maybe less expensive resources, whatever, so that you can deliver this the solution at some reasonable scale. But then the other side is, of course, you have to market it now, right? You have to actually put it out in the marketplace. You have to build a practice around it on the website. You have to develop a thought leadership agenda. So you have to start doing those things that are going to create demand and interest. And you probably also have to think about from a sales side, who are we selling this to? You know, where are we selling this into our existing client base? Is this a new solution into our existing client base or is this a our same solution to a new client base, right? I think you jumped ahead too quickly there. <laughs> Maybe that's because you run an agency and you're, I'm you're smarter than you? Because you're, you're no, because you're 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 actually in a professional services firm. I, I think that's a step or two down the road. I would never want to brand and market the things that the way you just described until I had at least 10 engagements, that there was a repeatable process that moves beyond the individuals. And I still don't think I would make an investment the way you described it just yet. There's multiple reasons for that, but your thinking is the right direction. I would just go a little bit slower and make sure that it's well-grounded. I, I guess you could jump in, but I mean, you know, because you raise a point when you say talk, put it on the website and, and do all that stuff. One of the steps is determining where does this new product or service fit into the brand architecture or the service solution structure. And if it's going to be an incredible source of growth, then it merits an elevation. But where do you put it in that brand architecture or service solution structure really is kind of dictated by what it is and how does it relate to the other existing solutions or service lines? Is it a simple product extension? Is it something completely new and different? Is it a totally different buyer? I suspect it it probably won't be a different buyer, but if it's a totally different buyer, whether that's a functionally different buyer or it's a more senior buyer, that has big impact on the scalability of the marketing and the positioning of, of the brand. And if you move too quickly with that, you can confuse your core market and your firm about where you're playing. You know, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying you're too fast. Well, it's always good to slow down, let the market pass you by, and then play catch up later. <laughs> I totally agree. Now, I'm just teasing. What you exploited, which is really good, is that again, you know, building out this idea of a stage gate methodology. It's sort of stage one is sort of sell it in a one to one capacity, build up a base of, of, of engagements. Maybe step two is start to scale it, meaning start to figure out, get the 10 engagements, you know, start to figure out the methodology, start to train people, figure out how you're going to actually be able to scale it. And then you know, until you get to then is when you start to really think about how do we market this thing now that we actually have an idea of how we would deliver it at scale. Now, how do we market it? And by this time, good chances Accenture's already eaten your lunch and you're completely out of business. But it's funny, as you were talking about the whole notion of architecture and messaging, this came to me and it was the idea that I find the whole digital transformation movement that's played out so heavily across 
really all industry and certainly consulting firms in general, to your point being a really interesting one, because in a lot of firms, I can always tell that they're sort of struggling with how this thing fits in because they mm-hmm. know it's the biggest thing in the market right now. So they have to have a digital practice that's all about transformation or they're, or they're going to be dead in the water. But oftentimes they already have a very robust technology practice. And so now they've got this robust technology practice that's been here for decades. And now they've got this new digital offering and you know the layman looks at it and goes, aren't those kind of the same? Shouldn't those be kind of coexisting more? And so you can see that in those instances where, to your point, in order to stay up with the market, they had to go fast, but it maybe isn't fully baked quite yet. And you can see some of the exposure in the seams, I guess. That's a great example and an excellent insight, Jason. And we talked a little bit about that when we dissected the McKinsey rebrand. And oftentimes firms, and, and this is why this, the, the due diligence and these stages are so important, is that firms tend to have an inside out perspective instead of an outside in. And this is why buyer's journey and the mapping of those is is so important because you need to understand how does a client perceive the issue and the solution? Who do they see as a competitive set? How do they see how they go about solving this? Where would they look for a solution like this? And that's more important than just flipping the stuff out in the way you just described it, throwing it up on a website, for example, what what good is it going to do on a website? And let's say it's buried one or two levels down in a, in a solution architecture. Nobody's going to see it. You're not going to be optimized for any SEO. All you could probably do is refer a client to that page. Maybe if they went to your website and said, hey, do they have a digital practice in this space? And they they go down to that level, maybe. But I think, you know, time would be so much more valuable putting together a couple of case studies from those 10 clients that you've already done the work for. Because I think in in terms of the intellectual capital hierarchy, case studies are near the top because clients want to see the results and they want to see where you've solved this problem with with other people. And if you have a friend of the firm with a great brand and, and you've done that, the case study is is the fastest and easiest way to demonstrate your capability around a product, not all the other stuff. Yeah, or maybe do a webinar with the the client and go through the case study. But I, I just think that's more cost effective, more controlled, and probably has the highest return on investment for marketing dollar. All right. So I learned something in this podcast. <laughs> and what I learned is so last time we talked about this topic from the other side. I described a friend of mine in a venture capital firm who his job is to sort of squelch ideas, you know, so the, there's all this exuberance from the partners about making investments. And his job is to tell them all the reasons these investments are going to fail. And I figured out our roles in this podcast. So my role is the, is the visionary excited guy. You know, so my inclination is, and this, I know this, is that when a client comes to me and describes this new offering they have, I often get very excited. I'm like, yeah, this is an incredible opportunity. We absolutely need to go after this. And of course, I want to go, you know, not scale it in the phrase we used it today, but I want to go market it because I'm like, you know, this is a huge opportunity. Let's go get it. Let's go get this new revenue source for you. And you're the the other side of that. You're the the you're the fun killer, right? You're the guy. Realist. <laughs> Realist. That steps in and says, wait a minute, wait a minute. We got to look at all the reasons this is going to fail and then tear it apart before we do anything. 
So I say that for our listeners in that I actually say that on purpose that I do think that those are, as you've said, in your roles of the marketing function, that you need these people in your firm. You need these people that are the, the that, that play all these roles, that are this exuberant advocate that are always you know optimistic and willing to go chase this thing and say, yeah, we can go build this market. But then you also need the people to pull them back and say, well, whoa, time out. We, let's double check that before we go both feet in. It's just like my marriage. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, I am going to end this podcast. <laughs> so if memory serves, next time we talk, we are going to talk about how to kill a practice. So in, in, in this series on starting things, we're going to start talking about starting new services and killing them. So that's what we have on tap. I hope you'll join me for that topic and I hope our listeners will as well. Yeah. And Jason will take the lead on that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, apparently not. Yeah, the, the realist will. That's going to be a boring one. Our listeners are, we're losing listeners as we speak. I better cut oh, off. You, you know what? Those listeners are going, oh my gosh, I, I have like 10 I want to kill. Yeah. All right. So we'll make this promise. We'll give you the three steps or six steps to kill a practice. How's that? So, so that it's systematic. You, you promised that this was going to be systematic. But, and- listen, but listen to our poor <laughs> listeners. You don't even know how many steps there are. You're just guessing. You're just pulling, you're just pulling from a bag right now. They have, they have no idea. The pragmatist with, with no structure. Unbelievable. Oh, I have the steps, but because this is a partnership, I have to compromise and squeeze yeah. in some of your stuff. You, you don't even know what they are. You're making, you're making it up as you go. All right, I'll talk to you next week. See you, buddy. <laughs> See you. Thank you for listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Find content related to this episode at rattleandpedal.com. Rattle and Pedal is also available on iTunes and Stitcher. Oh, oh, oh.